Morning, beloved Covenant family. Good to see you all. Uh, these are kind of the, the days when everybody seems to be going back to school, aren't they? I just um, want, I know a number of our students have already stepped out of the room, uh, but I just want you to know if you are a student, I've been praying for you over those, these last few weeks. Um, I, uh, I know it's been a couple of years for me, last time I went off to school, but I still remember vividly that kind of mix of feelings, parts of it that I was excited about and lots of it I was not. Uh, so I've been praying for you that, that Jesus would give you everything you need and also that Jesus would shine through you into the lives of the people that God brings around you this school year. I want to be able to uh, also extend a welcome uh, to you who are connected with Purdue, staff, students, faculty, grad students. Uh, we love that you're here this morning and we know that classes start tomorrow morning. I've already met uh, at least one person today who starts Purdue for the very first time tomorrow, but is here at worship this morning. And that is a perfect picture of what the message is about today. We love that you're here. Welcome. Uh, I, my name is David. I'm the senior pastor. I'd love to have a chance to meet you after the service if, if we haven't had a chance to connect yet. Well, pray with me, would you? Lord, we do turn our eyes to you. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And give us hearts ready to respond. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, this morning we kick off our new year of ministry with a new sermon series that's called Re-Up. The idea for this sermon series came months ago. It was at the very beginning of this year or maybe even towards the end of last year. <clears throat> we had been, I'd been praying about uh, the fall because we had been in a series of conversations as a staff about the way that COVID was not only something kind of receding into the past from us and having made a big dent in a moment, but something that continued to have an impact on the way that we lived out our spiritual life together as a church family now. The Bible teaches, if you've, you know this, if you've read any portion of it, the Bible teaches that spiritual growth is a normal and expected part of the Christian life. And it also teaches that the church, by God's design, is actually intended to be the primary arena in which that spiritual growth will best be nurtured. But then came COVID. And for many of us, just as it did for every other part of our lives, it disrupted everything in our spiritual life and in our involvement in church. Now, I think it's important that we acknowledge that in some cases, the changes that came as a result of COVID were very healthy ones. We slowed down, reconnected with family and friends, thinned out our schedules, found ways to connect with our neighbors, discovered more balance, took care of a few overdue home improvement projects, made more time for our, our morning prayers. But for some, and even for the very same people, the challenges and disruptions of COVID were ones that set us back in some ways in our spiritual progress, rather than propelling us forward. For some, the last couple of years have been a time of, of pulling in and Pairing back, maybe even opting out. It's been a time of becoming accustomed to our church involvement, requiring less of us and 
liking that. For some, for understandable reasons, COVID has resulted in our being less consistent in worship, maybe less connected with each other, having fewer people into our homes, being less inclined to get together, being less available to serve. And the, the church has certainly felt some of those things. <coughs> the church's ministries have been stretched as a result of some of those changes taking place in each one of us as individuals. As you've already heard this morning, it's much harder for us to, to get enough men and women to carry out our next-gen ministry in the way that we would like to, not to mention our visitation teams and our welcome ministry and our work with kids at Murdoch and almost every other ministry in the church. Well, around here, we see the fall, which in many ways is the start of our church's ministry year, as a great time to just stop and take stock of where we are in our relationship with the Lord and to make whatever adjustments we need to before we start into another year. So before we go on, let me just pause and ask, how would you say the disruption of the COVID virus over the past couple of years continues to impact the shape of your spiritual life today, your spiritual growth, the way you're connected to the church? Are you where you want to be? Well, around here, we also see the fall as a great time to remind all of us who we are and what we are about as a church. What is this thing that God has called us to do? Well, especially in the last two years, as you know, we've seen quite a bit of changeover in the makeup of our church. As the tides of COVID and the turbulent waters of, of race issues and political issues and, and even response to COVID with masking and distancing and so on, and, and other divisive cultural issues, as all of those have carried a number away from us and brought a number of others to us. And I think it's important that we just acknowledge that reality as a church. So how do we best orient those who are new to covenant to who we are as a church family? How do we point them to the things that most define us as a church and, and bring them into the way that we understand what it means to follow Jesus as king and to live our lives for him. We typically see the fall as a time to do some of that work together. So we also wanted this fall sermon series to be one that orients us all, new and old alike, to what stands at the center of our church's life and to invite the whole church family to full participation in the life and work of this thing called the church that in God's design stands at the center of fostering and deepening spiritual growth. By the way, let me just say, if you are new to covenant in the last few years, last few months, last few weeks, I just want to express what a, a joy it is for us to receive you into our church family and into our midst. I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to get to know a number of you who are newer to covenant and we are really glad for the opportunity to explore together what it will look like for you to become part of our church's life and then part of our church's ministry and mission. And I just want to say one of the funnest things about so many of you that I've met 
is you have already jumped in with both feet. You learned about this new thing we're doing called Thrive, and you've already jumped into it and walked your way all the way through it. And coming out of that, you have leapt into groups that you've become part of, and you have discovered ways to use your gifts to serve in the life of the church. And it has been so fun watching the vision and the energy and the passion with which you have become a part of the Covenant family. And we joyfully welcome you. So, but then, um, as I was thinking about where we would start this fall, there's this whole tone question. The last thing that we want to do is to be heavy-handed in our approach to the fall. We want our fall series to be invitational and not accusational or burdensome or guilt-inducing. We don't want a communication, we want to, don't want to communicate a message that sounds like we're saying something like, look, you're just not doing it right. This is what you need to do. And we sure don't want to make the Christian life sound like one big, long checklist of stuff that you've got to be doing in order to make God happy. So in the midst of thinking and praying about all of that, a passage and a word came to mind. The passage is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and the word is re-up, which I hope you'll see later as we go on, is really a play on words that are found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Well, the usual connotation of the word re-up is fairly neutral. The phrase comes from uh, right before and during the time of World War II in the military. And it's short for re-sign up. So originally it meant re-enlisting for military service. But soon the meaning of the word kind of spread and widened to include signing up for, again, for any sort of commitment that you've already made a first time. A job, a contract, a, a place on the team, a membership in the club, that sort of thing. But for many, and maybe for you, the word re-up has a decidedly negative connotation, especially if you served in the military and have felt undue pressure to sign back on again. I I learned after we named this sermon series that during the Vietnam War, one of the last steps for every soldier who was seeking to be discharged was to have a meeting with a recruitment officer who pressured them with all kinds of incentives to re-up. Well, sometimes that sort of negative pressure can be connected to the way that we talk about our spiritual lives and our spiritual growth in the church. The last time Sharon and I drove to Charlotte, we passed a truck just outside of Knoxville that had this sign painted on the end of the trailer. It says, did you pray today? And then a pretty harsh looking man is pointing his finger at you as you drive by. It's a great question, but not exactly an inviting image, is it? Well, it immediately brought another image to my mind. It may have yours as well. Which brings us right back to the negative associations of this phrase, re-up. Come on, get your act together. Fulfill your obligations. It's a message dripping with guilt and pressure. So when you think about God's invitation to take a next step in your spiritual growth, 
Is this a sort of association that you have? That someone is sticking his finger in your face and saying, did you do everything I expected you to do today? But when we offer ourselves back to God in his service, it's not creepy prayer guy or Uncle Sam who stands before us and invites our deeper engagement. It's this man. Okay, well, it's not actually this man. It's not Jonathan Rumi, who's the actor who stars in the miniseries The Chosen, which, by the way, if you haven't seen, I highly recommend. But the man that he portrays, Jesus, who doesn't wag his finger at us in a scolding fashion and accuse us or pressure us and insist that we get with the program, but who instead extends his hand to us, receiving us with grace and with gladness, and invites us deeper in, invites us to experience more of the life and the fullness that he has for us. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and worn out, and I will give you rest, as we sang this morning, he said that actually in the context of laying out all the expectations that he had for his followers. He never says, my yoke, my set of expectations for my followers is easy because it isn't. That's, a, I think, a misunderstanding and a mistranslation of the text. What he does say is my yoke is easy to bear. The word means gentle. My yoke is gentle. It's gentle. It's easy to bear because it comes as invitation and opportunity instead of burden and obligation. It comes free of the added weight of accusation and guilt, and it comes with the promise of help from God himself. So pausing again, which version of the Christian life shapes your thinking? A checklist of demands held before you by a glowering God or a grumpy church? Or an invitation into a life of abundance held out to you by a God who loves you and a church that wants nothing more than, than to encourage you to draw nearer to him. When you hear a call to take a next step spiritually, which is the tone that you hear? And where do you land the weight of that burden, that expectation? We can so easily miss the fact that Jesus' invitation for us to grow always comes with its own power source. The expectations that Jesus puts before us as followers are coupled with promises of the Spirit of God at work within us. Bringing about growth from the inside. Gone is the burden of performance pressure, of having to white-knuckle it, having to muster up growth from within on our own steam. Listen to these passages that, that not only communicate and reiterate that spiritual growth and progress is a normal and expected part of the Christian life, but also tell us where the burden for that growth lies. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It is God who is at work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. 
And Hebrews chapter 13, 21, a favorite verse of mine I've taped up over my desk. May he work in us what is pleasing to him. So a call to spiritual growth is really a call to partnership with God, in which God does the work, and our main responsibility is to open our lives up to him and to cooperate with that work. What that means is that the call to spiritual growth and maturity can land at our feet lightly, wrapped up with with anticipation and with joy. A number of you have read C.S. Lewis's awesome Chronicles of Narnia. You'll remember the exhilarating invitation that comes and that is repeated again and again in the last battle when Aslan, the Jesus figure, invites his followers, come further in, come further up. That same sense of exhilaration and expectancy should be part of what we feel every time we hear God's invitation to go deeper into the life that he has for us. This morning, Jesus says to each one of us, come further in, come further up. And your heart in response says, which brings us to the passage that came to mind. Colossians chapter three, verses one to four. Since then you have been raised with Christ Re-up, set your eyes back up on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. (coughs) There is so much that's here, but... This morning, I just want to focus in on two things. First, look at what Paul says is true of us if we have become followers of Christ. Look at what he says about where we really are and who we really are and whose we really are. We think we live on Stadium or on Salisbury or on Calbear or on Hartman Court, but we don't, not ultimately. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In this passage, Paul makes an astonishing claim about who we are and where we are as Christians. Where do we reside? With Christ in glory. We tend to think about what defines us as Christians. As the fact that through Christ's death on the cross, we are forgiven as for our sins, and we are reconciled to God, all of which is awesome and all of which is certainly true. And Paul points that out a few verses back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. We were once at odds with God because of our sin, and now through his death on the cross, we have been forgiven and reconciled to God when we put our trust in him. But in the verses that surround that verse, Paul is saying there's a second mysterious layer to our redemption that is also true. Theologians refer to it as incorporation. It means that in some spiritual way that we can barely get our arms around, when we receive Christ by faith, we began from that point forward to live our lives not just for him, but in him. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, that, uh, where, where this conversation begins 
that Paul is, is ending in chapter 3, a passage we're going to look at again next Sunday. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, talking about that step of faith, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. And there's more, what, what Bible scholars refer to as identification. Because of our incorporation into Christ, when Jesus died, was buried, and then rose from the dead, he didn't just do that for us. He did that with us. It's as though we were in his pockets when he did it. When Jesus died, we died with him. Who we used to be has been put to death with Christ. When Jesus rose, we rose with him. Who God intends us to be has been brought to life with and in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. That spiritual reality is what Paul is referencing here at the start of chapter 3. He reminds the Colossians that they're not simply forgiven and reconciled people who otherwise are the same as they've always been and who have to keep working on the basis of their own effort to make themselves right with God. Instead, in Christ, their old selves have died and their new selves have risen to life in their place. In Christ, we are not just forgiven. We are newly constituted beings. Just as the death and resurrection of Jesus are the turning point for all of human history, so our death and resurrection with Christ are the turning point of our existence as individual human beings. Which is why in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, Paul describes life for followers of Christ in such radically distinctive terms that so starkly separate us from the world around us. He says, he says we are God's children, holy and dearly loved, and that we will be marked by compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And over all of those things will, will be love which binds them all together in Christ we are transformed beings. But though we have died and been raised with Christ into new life in the heavenly realms, we still have to live out our lives here on earth where it is so easy for us to lose sight of the truth of things and for us to get swallowed up in what our eyes tell us is true rather than what our souls see and know to be true. But Paul reminds us that we no longer belong to this world in which we are called to faithfully serve God and live out our days. This what you see is all there is realm of the body and the senses. We have died from this world and we have been brought to life in another realm that is even more substantial and more real. Which brings us back to the verse and to the second thing that I want us to see here. Look at what Paul says about where we should fix our eyes. Paul says, given what's true about you as one whose life is found in Christ, here's where you should keep your focus. Verses 1 and 2, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated upon the throne. 
Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. Let me tell you two really interesting stories about focusing our eyes and about a couple of fascinating conversations that I've had recently. The first was with a friend of mine named Lindsay, some of you know her, who recently started drag racing. I asked Lindsay the most important thing that she learned at drag racing school about how to drive a car from zero to 165 miles an hour in less time than it takes to open an app on your phone. And what she told me is the very first time that she raced, she thought that she had blacked out during the drive. But what she learned in her racing school was that during her run, her eyes were jumping around all over the place, understandably, from her dashboard to the drag strip to the fence next to her to the car beside her. And every time she moved her eyes for that split second, she lost her vision completely, which meant that for most of that eight second run, she really wasn't seeing anything. What her instructor told her to do is to pick a single focal point at the very end of the track and never take her eyes off of it. it. But instead of concentrating hard on that point, which, as you know, can lead to tunnel vision, what he said to her was that she should relax her vision. And then she would discover that by focusing on one thing, she could actually see everything else at the same time. So she started doing that, and she said it transformed her racing experience. Reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote that I love. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The other conversation was with my friend Anne, who is a helicopter pilot and part of this congregation, a number of you know her. I was telling her about an intense moment in a book that I was reading called Into the Storm by Tristram Corton. He tells of a pilot named Rick Smith, or Rick Post, sorry, flying a Coast Guard helicopter into a hurricane to try to rescue 12 men who were stranded in a life raft after their cargo ship sank. He is flying at night with night vision goggles on above 30-foot-high waves, think house-sized waves, with sheets of rain coming down, the wind blowing sideways in gusts up to 60 miles an hour, trying to lower a little metal basket down a cable toward a raft that is at night, in the dark, in the storm, that is rising and falling on house-sized waves and scuttling away whenever the wind picks up. And he can't see anything out of his windshield, and he's flying almost entirely by his instruments. Understandably, there comes a point where he begins to get disoriented. His hover bar on his instrument panel shows that he's moving, but he feels like he's stationary. More and more, he's having trouble staying oriented. The flashes of lightning, the, the slashing rain mess with his vision, and vertigo begins to set in. Realizing, as he says, that he needed to reestablish some frame of reference, he hits the auto depart button, which takes over control of the Jayhawk. It lifts it 300 feet straight up into the air and it reestablishes it in a level hover. And from there, with a new frame of reference, Rick immediately has a sense of which way is up and he's able to dive right back down to the waves and to finish the rescue. So talking to Anne, she confirmed how incredibly easy it is to become disoriented when you're flying a helicopter. 
And she said that when she worked as a helicopter instructor, she would tell her students something almost identical to what Lindsay's drag racing instructors told her. Pick your point. Find a point of reference outside of the helicopter, something beyond your immediate visual sphere, 50 feet away, and fix your focus on that before you ever try to pick up or to set down the helicopter. And she said it was common for her while she was teaching her students to have to keep repeating again and again and again, keep your object, keep your object, keep your object. Because the students would bring their eyes into the helicopter and right away they would begin to lose perspective and their stable and level flight would begin to erode. There is so much of direct relevance to this passage in those stories, isn't there? There's so many places where in the, in the clutter of this world where you and I can be tempted to fix our eyes. And in this passage, Paul says to us, keep your object, keep your object, keep your object. As it says in God's word translation, focus on the things that are above, where Christ holds the honored position. Well, as you and I come into the busyness of the fall, there are all kinds of things crowding in around us and demanding our focus and our attention. And it would be so easy for us to let our eyes hop from the dash to the fence flying by, to the impossibly narrow strip that the car is on, to the car that is racing along beside us, or from the instrument panel, to the rain on the windshield, to the waves that are rising and falling without ceasing, to the wind that is blasting against the fuselage. Paul urges us to bring our eyes into line with the rest of our spiritual reality. You reside in the spiritual realm, in the throne room. So let your gaze rest there and let God bring everything else into its proper focus in your life. As Eugene Peterson puts this in the message translation, pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you, look up. I just came across this passage this week, and I don't recall having read this before, but over 20 years ago, I put a post-it up over my desk that says, look up. A number of you have seen it in my office. What could that mean for us? What could it mean for us to look up, to set our hearts and minds on things above? I think it could mean entering the throne room together with our church family every Sunday morning this fall and allowing ourselves to be recalibrated to the truest and deepest reality of all, which is God on the throne before whom we bow and cast our crowns. I think it could mean every one of us starting and ending every day with prayer this fall. If you're not using them, the morning and evening prayers on the Lectio 365 app are a great place to start. I think it could mean for every one of us, every day, regular moments throughout the day of leaning back from the present moment and just fixing our eyes on the eyes of Christ, looking up to him, engaging in what Ignatius calls a spiritual retreat. I think it could mean inviting his continued participation as we cross the various doorways of our day, 
into meeting rooms, into lunchrooms, into classrooms, into the rooms in our home, a practice that Sharon shared with me that someone has called threshold prayers. I think it could mean whenever we are together with others, whether out loud or silently, that we would invite the Lord to use that time for his loving purposes and to make us attentive to them and to him. I suppose we could call these 18, 19, 20 prayers, referencing Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 to 20, whenever two or three gather together in my name, there am I in their midst. And related to our series, I think it could mean that we would begin the fall, that as we begin the fall, before we let everything else crowd in around us and crowd out our view, we would fix our gaze on him and then bring all of those other things one by one into his gaze and allow him to give them their proper place and perspective. If you're a student, and this is exactly what Lydia and Madeline described so beautifully for us this morning. If you're a student, before you let your schedule get jammed and, and your soul cluttered with syllabuses and homework assignments and sports practices and games, fix your eyes on things above. If you're at home raising kids, before you let the 24-7 needs and commitments of your kids claim every available minute that you have, let Jesus fill your view. Look to him first. If you work in the business world, or you teach, or you practice medicine, or whatever you do vocationally, before you let your work responsibilities crowd out your view, lift your line of sight and look at Christ. And if you're retired, and you have lots of available time and margin throughout the day, don't let the habits and routines fill in all of the available time. Set your heart each day on things above and invite the Lord to shape the way that you use your time. What do you think this could mean for you this fall? As we begin this new year of life and ministry together, I believe that this is God's gracious invitation to us. Keep Christ at the center. Glue your eyes to him. Make him and him alone your fixed point of reference. If you see him clearly, he will allow you to see everything else clearly as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray the passage that you gave to us in Hebrews chapter 12. Lord, let us together, individually, this fall, let us run with endurance the race that you have set before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the champion, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And who, because of the joy awaiting him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and is now seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. 